Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. I am one of your hosts, Ian Rice, and with me, as always, Mr. David Hudson. David, how are you, sir? Still recovering from the holidays, Ian. What about yourself? Happy New Year. That's correct. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. This is our first show back for 2023. Yeah, I know. It's been a little bit since we actually recorded a proper episode because we've had a bunch in the can and I was out of town for a month. I know. I was heartbroken. I didn't know what to do with myself. I know. I think we went actually like three days without talking. I know. It was a record. It was a personal <laughs> record. <laughs> you were like, hey, man, is everything okay? Yeah. You okay, David? <laughs> I'm still here. You want to go to Red Lobster? <laughs> but joining us for this episode, David, I couldn't think of anybody better to kick off the year with the professor himself, Mr. Ray Permi. Ray, how you doing? I'm doing well, gentlemen. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for inviting me on this. Always a pleasure, sir. And we are going to be digging deep into the band sessions portion of the Lost Crows compilation. For those who don't know, the band sessions were recorded mid to late 97 and circulated as a bootleg for a number of years before the Crows finally released it with the Tall Sessions on the Lost Crows compilation. David, I seem to remember you mentioning in the past that uh, you had gotten this as a a bootleg, but uh, you had a hard time getting it. I did. It's basically, I I remember when they started circulating, and, you know, those in the days, if you got a BNP, you know, somebody would do that for you. It was, uh, it was a big deal. And I kept hearing about Wyoming and me, Wyoming and me and, uh, another roadside tragedy on the boards. And then finally, I mean, I, I can't remember what I probably had to give up to get it, but I finally got the CD in the mail and was just enamored with it. Yeah. I mean, it, it was fantastic. I spent a lot of time with the band sessions and I, I've always listened to, there was even a, a separate bootleg that circulated later, I think it was called the band sessions rehearsals and it had some outtakes and things. And I just loved it. it. Honestly, if this was a proper release, it probably would be my favorite thing. The black crows have ever done. I don't know. Ray, what's your relationship with this? Well, I didn't get into the only thing I ever got from a BNP from a crows thing was something from feathered fiend. Mm. And he sent me all these, these B sides with a yeah. uh, Chevrolet and, and uh, the, the studio version of waiting guilty, but, I still have that. I actually have that loaded in my iPad or, or my iPod, but the band sessions I got with the Lost Crows. So, okay. and I was more, more into tall than anything else because I loved Morica. So, and that was, like I said, I was late to the Crows. I, I, I showed up in 2006, right when, right before they, they put this out. Uh, I saw them right after, right after I saw the Rolling Stones in, in uh, Austin at Zilker Park. And like the next three days, four days later, I saw the crows. That's a cool back to back. Yeah. I I kept looking for Kate Hudson, but she was already gone. (laughs) And um, Paul Stacy was there on guitar. And uh, I didn't realize that, that Mark and Ed had already gone. And uh, I just remember the dude behind the soundboard, which was off to the side of the stage. He was just, he was jamming right along with the band. 
And he looked like one of the fabulous Fury Freak brothers, if you guys mm-hmm. remember those. And he was just <laughs> bopping right along. And I was just like, I was with my wife going, check that out. Because the whole place was just, just got sucked into the music like any good concert. So, I mean, kind of right place at the right time. You know, you get into the yeah. Crows and, and this is released. I mean, the, the whole package of the Lost Crows itself is a really, it was a gift to the fans, I think. Because both uh, recordings had been so sought after for so long, like proper, clean sounding versions of them you know although i will say that the bootleg of the band that circulated was much cleaner than a lot of the tall bootlegs that circulated for many years i often wonder what it would have been like had they gone the route of releasing this as a proper album because if you read steve's book he mentions that they were very big on this recording and were very gung-ho about releasing it like kind of warts and all and just putting it out there i don't know what do you guys think of of how that would have went there's definitely, I think, a couple of singles on there mm. that you could have put out that um, had a little bit of a pop feel to it that I think the radio would have liked. I guess the record company at that point was just wanting Shake Your Money Maker Part 2. Mm. This is definitely not Shake Your Money Maker Part 2. Well, it's because they were, didn't they just change? They just changed labels. Mm-hmm. That was unfortunate timing for that. And the other thing that gets me about Steve's book is he talks about how how they were recording these demos and and somebody turned around and said, hey, these sound pretty good. And everybody agreed. Why at that moment didn't they decide to to properly separate everything? To to give like two or three songs to to their manager Pete and have him get a sound engineer out there to record it right. I don't I don't understand. But you know, Steve kind of just in the book he kind of is like, well, we were all kind of in a groove and we just got caught up. But at this point, I'm like, well, you guys aren't really a new band at this point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've been around the block a couple of times. This really could have done something. This was a I think it's a very mature work for them. Yeah, I would have to agree. And I think the thing that does hold it back a bit is its sound quality in terms of the way it was recorded, because like you said, things aren't, you know, as pro as perhaps they should be. Is this the one that Johnny took the shotgun to the studio to get the Yes. Tapes. Yeah. <laughs> what was the name of the studio? This was what was the name of the studio that this was recorded at? Purple Dragon. Which is probably now selling C B D oil. <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is kind of like almost their garage rock album in a way, in terms of the sonic quality of it. You know, it's kind of very very raw, very demo-y. But uh I there's good things and bad about that to me. Like something attracts me to that kind of thing, but also sometimes detracts from the overall sound quality. You know what I mean? Well, the only thing with me that detracts from it is when I listen to it on headphones, the sonic space is like, if I could put it in a thing of degrees, it's more like a hundred to 90 degrees instead of a full 180. It doesn't feel as, as big sonically. And it's not compressed. Like how you deal with compression is, you know, the compression wars that we've been suffering from forever with CDs. Mm. It's just, it just feels like everything's really jammed in and it's just a really narrow scope that it's going down instead of being as wide as it should be. I like, I like how it's ramshackle and has the warts in it. It really shows the musicianship of this band because of that. And then they couldn't do that many uh, overdubs or, or fixing anything, but I just wish they would have, recorded it properly yeah. to be able to get the full scape. No, absolutely. And to me, it also seems like this was the 
more natural next step from three snakes like by your side is such an abrupt 180 for them you know Mm -hmm. i think it kind of alienated some of the fans that had been following them through all the phases you know it was kind of like let's run back to the shake your money maker kind of thing because the label's telling us to a little bit you know which which is against the crow's ethic anyway Mm. they were never really like that they were always kind of like we're going to sound like the way we wanted to sound we're not copying anything. We're not going to do it just because it's this year's big thing. Then they come out with "By Your Side," and it, it that was just "By Your Side." just too. It's recorded too pristine for me. Mm. It's too clean sounding. Yeah. Um, it's and the song sounds so forced. Yeah. Well, there's no soul to them, and we understand why because it was just rich. Right. There was no other guitarist there, and you can hear the song "By Your Side," and then you hear. You know, if it ever stops raining and you're like, I prefer if it ever stops raining. Yeah, I think I think one person handling all the guitar duties kind of eliminates that natural back and forth between two guitar players. Even if mm-hmm. recording your parts separately, you're still playing off of someone else's playing. You know what I mean? It wasn't Keith Richards and Let It Be mm. and Let It Bleed. So, I mean, he's the only one that's ever been able to pull that off. Yeah. And yeah, my so, hat's off to him because he that was pulled off nicely but what do you say we jump into this one we go start going track by track like we usually do the album starts off with a track that became a big time fan favorite in concert and a lot of people have said this and it's been noted and i i suppose it's true but they say that portions of this song became come on on lions I think it's a more sped up version of the riff, but I never, never quite fully heard that. But uh, that's pain and ache. David, what do you think of this one? I really like it. Um, and this one became real popular on the live circuit because there was a, you know, a pain and eight and jam, which people really enjoyed, but man, the song starts off hot, no build up, Boom. It's there. Mark's playing a meanwhile in the intro. I love kind of the drum pattern that Gorman is using to kind of matching the, the melody of the guitars, but Ray and I like to talk sometimes about song meanings. Um, to me, this is just about a person repeating patterns of bad choices. The, to me, the obvious subject is drugs, but uh, painting eight on my door seems to signify that he isn't going to change in eight days, would just be another uh, n- another day in the cycle for him. It's debuted in 97, and I would say it's one of the two or three most beloved songs off this album amongst the diehards. It's one of those holy grail tunes that you hope for on a set list. You know, I've always loved this tune. I think it's, I think it's great. You're absolutely right. Mark is laying down some nasty wah in that intro and really makes it sound, sound dirty. It was, it's a good song as an opener, but I, I, on the bootleg version, this wasn't, this didn't open the the running order. And I think it's actually better as not the lead off track. I mean, it kind of works in that position, but uh, you know, I, uh, I think it's better suited coming in, uh, coming in later. 
Ray, what's your take on pain and ache? What a, what what's with these opening notes, man? There's nothing that's gonna just tell you the, that you're just about to get throttled. Immediately, you know you're in for a psychedelic sonic ride, just nice and funky. Lyrically, they're they're taking that Christ haunted Southern theme to the next level here. Pain and eight. I didn't get the same meaning that, that David got. It's, it's, it was more like I've gone through so much good and bad, a perfect storm. And since the number seven is regarded in the Jewish and Christian faith as signifying perfection or completeness. So painting an eight is a sign that I'm one step beyond. He's just really fucked up. Um, <laughs> the, the opening line of seven sorrows, seven more mistakes and seven things to borrow, seven more to take. I got that from the, uh, the new Testament coming through uh, Catholicism about the seven sorrows of, of Mary, um, seven spiritual acts of mercy, seven deadly sins, seven virtues, seven joints, and seven sorrows of Mary. So I, like I said, the Christ haunted South. Uh, there's just, this song is just incredible. There's so much going on in three minutes and five seconds that the band is in full flight. The dynamics of Rich and Mark weaving in and out and Johnny's bubbling right along and, and the Ed's Hammond organ is just pumping. You, you listen to Rich's unusual rhythm and Mark's weaving wad during that intro over Steve's staccato drumming, and it's the same for the chorus. The thing I get about this song that gets me going so much is that so much is going on, it would be so easy for bands to get lost in. And that's the mark right there of making something complicated appear almost effortless. This is what Tight But Loose sounds like. Once again, I'll be repeating this a lot. The solo was so perfectly performed and how the band came to a stop and then restarted like it was like a fever dream just broke. I did so much research for this because I wanted to get this one right, just this album, after reading so many times about uh, how what the hell they regarded this album and, and these sessions. In a recent interview with Gorman, he confirmed my suspicions when I looked it up on Crow's Base how many times this was played live. It was only played twice in September in October 96, four times in June to August 97. It wasn't played again until 2005 and twice in 2006. And then twice in 2007 with Paul Stacy, I presume. And then they brought it back up together with Luther. And then once in 2009. The gap between 97 and 05 had me thinking they couldn't pull the song off with the band that they had, which Steve confirmed for me in his Dean Del Rey interview on his podcast in October 2019. I listened to a few boots from 97, 05, and, and 2010. And uh, the 2010 version really pales to the other ones. They seem slower and a lot more careful rather than confident and freewheeling. No Ed, no Mark. I respect Luther a ton. And he, like Ronnie Wood, didn't try to copy guitarists before them. He just honored them with his own style. But this song needs Mark, Rich, Ed, Steve, and Johnny, or Sven. Chemistry is the key. Anyway, this is a monster of a song and a hell of a way to open the album. I, I would agree wholeheartedly. You know, you you brought up something that uh, is very, very cool about Paul Stacy's treatment of this material is he brought from the bootleg version anyway, brought up Ed's keys in the mix. So you can hear oh, a lot yeah. of And on this one, he's kind of like, especially during the, the chorus part, he's really peppering in some really interesting stuff. And that's throughout the entire recording, but, you know, particularly on here, I think that's great. It's really a nice little showcase for what, Ed adds to all this music, you know. The, the whole song, the whole song sounds like it can fall apart at any second. Yeah. It doesn't. It's just so loose, and that's what I like about it. So, 
It's it's just like the Stones, but I've seen the Stones basically fall apart on stage a couple of times. But this is this is like a song that they could pull off. So, but they're yeah. not trying to sound like the Stones. No. <laughs> and then we we move swiftly along to another song that was a big time in concert, you know, hopeful that people wanted to get on their set lists and particularly on that summer 97 run. And that's a little tune called another roadside tragedy. I am a big fan of another roadside tragedy. I love the way that this song carries along and builds and builds and builds and then drops into that middle section with Mark's soloing, you know, very gentle, you know, not full of notes, not really complicated. He's just kind of speaking through his guitar and it's, it's such a relaxed little breakdown in the song. And then it builds back up again. It's one of it's the one of the coolest use of dynamics in 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 their music that I I've ever heard. I think this is a fantastic tune and belongs on any road songs compilation. You know what I mean, David? What do you think? Well, it's not it's another one of the fan favorites from this one. I really think that this is one of the best choruses in the catalog. I, I believe Chris's voice on the chorus is just it's Pete Chris. I'm like you. The the breakdown in the middle. It, it's just it's so tasteful. It's a nice change of pace from, you know, the courses, but, um, you know, at this point they had essentially been on the road for six and a half, seven years, and they had to just be completely fried from the road. We know that right after recording this, the band that we knew is, is going to go away and, you know, really never be, um, uh, together again until 2005, but, you know, another song about succumbing to the perils of the road and, and those that think they can, uh, can handle it. This is a top three song on, on on this album for me and you know there's there's only one song on this whole album that i don't really like yeah it, it's a great one live man and you know you're going to get it when you get that gorman uh drum feel intro and sometimes they would extend it out which you knew it was coming but uh yeah just a heck of a song yeah you mentioned that that gorman's drumming and that little those little rim hits he's doing at the end while the guitarists just keep getting quieter and quieter and drop out one by one. Oh man fantastic Ray, what's your take on this one? Just how it starts with that drum beat. 
that is a hybrid of a march and a shuffle and how Rich and Mark come in. It's just so ramshackle and sonically pleasing. It's a little chicken picking in there along with the transition into the verse groove. Again, Eddie shines along with Johnny. And I have been a big Johnny Colt fan since I heard Amorica. It's This is an instant favorite of mine from the first listen. I can easily identify with any road song, especially one of theirs. The bridge section where everything slows down and Ed's playing that church organ, it slows down to that dreamy gospel groove, Mark's bluesy solo, and then how Steve crashes in and builds the band back up for that turnaround. They jump back into that chaotic chorus for the playout. It's so good. It's just another banger of a song. And I love how it ends. Like one of those cars that keep turning over after you've taken the key out and the entire engine just block just keeps lunging over and over and over. This is not a band trying to sound like anyone else but themselves. This was the first song that they recorded. It was played seven times in 97 and it was shelved until 2005. And then it's been played pretty much since 2005 to 2013. Um, so many great live versions where the song just stretches out even longer. And it's just about a song about some road dogs witnessing and being part of numerous roadside tragedies. Who could deny that? And my favorite line is, no time for coffee, just splash water on my face. <laughs> Never could I ever do that. I always have time for coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, Ray, you mentioned Johnny Colton there, and it, it should be said he was in full force on this recording and that's 100 mm-hmm. even if he doesn't remember any specifics of it that's true but he, I, he does play great on this for a guy that you know by his own admission wasn't really that into the material by this point he really contributes a lot a lot of valuable yeah. playing well even according to steve's book he was pretty much not checked out but he had his, his life was beyond the crows now yeah and he he was sober and he wasn't playing the games that they were doing he always says he won the Black Crows or something, I believe, right, David? Mm-hmm. It's what Steve says, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then we move along to a little track that would eventually become By Your Side, and that's a track called If It Ever Stops Raining. <laughs> I think this was the first song I ever heard of any of these songs. And it was on a live bootleg from the further festival 97 tour. And I always thought it was great, but I, there's something about the chorus. I actually prefer this. Is, this is the weird thing about this. I prefer the by your side chorus and lyrics, but I like the sound of if it ever stops raining the way it's recorded and it's slightly slower. And 
I, I, I much prefer that. So it's, it's weird. I, I just think the, if it ever stops raining part is a little too repetitive. You know, it's almost like it was a stopgap, perhaps maybe until something else was put in its place. But other than that, I mean, I think it's great. I think this was designed to be like a twin guitar kind of approach between Rich and Mark. And ultimately it would become just Rich doing it on the By Your Side album. But you know, when it's the two of them, it's, it's, it's very, very cool. Uh, what's your take on this one, David? I prefer this version, honestly, over the By Your Side one. And I love the By Your Side one. And one of the reasons I like this one if you really listen to it intently during the course, Mark Ford is absolutely killing it in the background. Uh, I don't think it's as loud as it should be. I think it should be a little bit louder in the mix. Absolutely great. He does that on a, um, oh, I forget the name. There's a magpie song. If you put headphones on, you can hear him playing a lead like this over the course. But uh, the outro to this to me is kind of like what they do best. It's kind of like hotel illness. Uh, it's just so smooth with the groove. Uh, on the way out with uh, Mark playing these like really tasty melodic solos over it. This is about somebody that has undying love in the face of adversity and, you know, going to stick with them. And at some point it's going to be over with. I do prefer this one over by your side. Like I said, I really like by your side, but there's something about the course I just love and Mark's playing on it. And it just seems to have a little bit of a better groove on this version versus the by your side one. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I wish they had swapped lyrics when they, you know, by the time they recorded it for this, because sound-wise and playing-wise, this is the far superior version to me. Ray, what do you think? <laughs> I, I think you two guys are in my head. Um, <laughs> now, this song took me a little bit to get into, mostly because I already knew the By Your Side version, which is a little faster, not quite as sloppy, and the production is a little too pristine for my ears for this band. The other problem with this song is the chorus. I'm so imprinted by the by your side chorus that this one sounds kind of clunky and awkward to my ears, which I don't like because I prefer this version much more than the by your side version. And while you were talking, Ian, all I could think of was this is when a good producer comes in and you don't see anything. So Kevin Shirley was good for them on the chorus of this, but the rest, maybe not so much. Um, <laughs> originally written by Rich in 1991, floated around with the working title of Teabagging. Got that from, from Steve's book. Lyrics were written during the burst of creativity at Rich's house in Atlanta, just prior to going into the studio to record the demos. This was the third song recorded for the session. I know the lyrics for this one and By Your Side and the verses are almost identical, but I prefer the slower tempo and overall grittiness of If It Ever Stops Raining. And the outro, reminiscent of Tumbling Dice in a good way. I love the outro too, so... Yeah, I would I would definitely say that that is I never thought of it so you pointed it out, but it is very reminiscent of Tumbling Dice. But not in like a theft kind of way, just in a an just, homage, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's very hard to choose between the two as far as I'm concerned, the by your side or if it ever stops raining, because they both have good qualities to them. I will say that Kevin Shirley, although his production's a little slick for my taste, he does know how to record drums very well. Well, this is true. Yeah, that's why that's why Paige picked him for that that Zeppelin live album. It's true. I mean, I, I've always seen the By Your Side album as, you know, Steve's album. He rules that thing just with the way he plays drums and the way he's captured on tape playing the drums. But at any rate, that brings us to probably what is my number one song on this album. That is Wyoming and Me. You're beautiful, but you're flawed. You're desperate, but you're strong. Alone. You're empty like Wyoming 
This is a song that I always was fascinated by the title. I don't know exactly what it means. To me, it's it's kind of like it, it conveys a feeling of loneliness. This is what I thought was cool about the the band rehearsals bootleg that went around. There's a version of Wyoming and Me on there that doesn't have the horns on it. So the horn parts are kind of mirrored by Johnny Colt's bass. And you could see just exactly what those horns add to the song. It gives it this this much more emotion to it. It's just those simple lilting horns that come in. I just I think that really makes the song the way Steve drums on it. The acoustic guitar is perfect. Chris's singing is really, you know, it's it's heartfelt. It's there. You know, this is uh this is where all the all the pieces of the puzzle came together and they really converged and and this is it's a shame that this never was released properly, you know, uh, aside from this compilation. I know, David, how do you feel about this song? Well, like I said, it's the one that you he- I heard about so much before I got the CD. And I'm like you, the, the title just fascinated me. And I-, I mean, I had no clue what the song was going to sound like. I just remember the message board is Wyoming and me, Wyoming and me. Parts of this song did morph in to Welcome to the Good Times per Crow's Base. You know, and Ian, I kind of like the version without the horns kind of maybe prefer the nine horned version but really uh, this yeah this is one of the best courses that chris has ever written uh, there's so much emotion coming from him you know he never takes a day off from making you believe what he is singing regardless of what's going on he always gives it it's all and i have on here that steve symbols actually play a big role in setting the, the tone for the the song the slide guitar i love it it gives it that country tinge and i've kind of perplexed why they never gave this to a country singer to do. I mean, maybe they don't want a country singer doing their songs, but I feel I don't listen to country music at all. I don't listen to country music radio, but I feel like the right person with this specifically a female, um, I think could could really have a hit out of it, but this is top shelf, Chris, in my opinion, it, it's just such a good song. You know, the lyric you're empty, like Wyoming and me, it's just brilliant. Um, I, there's nothing, I can say negative about it, but did not debut until 2005. Yeah, very, very interesting. And uh, it was great to get it in a lot of those acoustic sets that they did throughout the 05, 06 run. And I, I, I song's just magic to me, just magic. You're lonely, but you're never alone, I think is probably one of my favorite lyrics. It's kind of almost like the Black Crows are there for you. Kind of, I always feel like that, you know. But uh, Ray, what's your take on this one? I presume that this is a song written about Chris and, and Lala's crumbling relationship. Um, seems like a song that he's singing about the aftermath of a really bad fight. He's got the distance and the emotional charges subsided, and he can collect his thoughts and feelings about the other and their relationship. And that line where you're all these great things, you're beautiful, but you're flawed. You're desperate, but you're strong. You're lonely, but never alone. You're empty, like Wyoming and me just makes me think that he's just done. The relationship is taking so much out of him. He's just got no more and there's nothing more between them. I do get a hint in the song somehow that he doesn't really vocalize, but it's still there that he really wants this to work out. He understands exactly what he's losing. And that solo, that bottleneck solo is so emotive and remorseful. It just fits perfectly. It serves this song great. It's a beautiful and sad song. Empty Like Wyoming is so descriptive especially poignant if you've ever visited Wyoming, there is nothing there. (laughs) It is beautiful. It is a beautiful, stark and harsh land. Yeah. This, I love this song. I think this is probably 
well, this isn't his most revealing song, but this one's up there. Yeah, I would certainly agree. And you touched on something, Ray, that I think is a constant thread throughout this recording is that, uh, you know, this seems like it has to do with Lala. And I feel like a lot of these songs where their relationship was at this time was informing his lyrical writing at the time. Cause I get that impression out of a lot of the songs on this record. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Uh, you know, particularly this one, but you know, several others as well. We'll have to, uh, confirm with Lala next time we speak to her. It may be too hard for her. So nobody which, wants to read which will that. be on our next episode, Ian. That's true, <laughs> yes. But uh so that brings us to a song that I am guessing is the one that you don't like on this record, David, but uh we'll we'll soon find out and that is predictable. Admittedly, this is probably my least favorite entry on this album. I don't dislike the song, but it's the one that seems the most unfinished to me. But a uh, very interesting part of this song to me is I, I, and I never noticed it originally. I noticed it more recently is that he's kind of doing the Mick Jagger, you know, forced Southern vocal sound to it. Like, 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 like Mick kind of does on dead flowers, you know, when you're sitting there, you know, like he really emphasizes the words like that. He, Chris kind of does that. That is the worst this. Southern accent I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I was doing, I see, I was doing an Englishman doing a Southern accent is what I was okay. doing. I was doing Mick doing it, you know, <laughs> from Long Island. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so that's why I kind of, I kind of thought that was kind of a cool parallel to some of the stone stuff and the way Mick does that. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but uh, I don't know, David. Surprise me. What do you think of this one? This isn't the one I dislike. <clears throat> really? Yeah. It's only been played once, and that was in 06. Mm. Um, and I have in my notes the same thing. You did. This seems to be the most unfinished song from a mastering standpoint. It's a great song, but it lacks a little bit of the clarity and putting the instruments in different spaces. Um, but, man, I love these verses and Rich's playing in the background. And then Chris kind of sings in a register that, like, really don't get to hear him sing in very often. It's not one of his like more like gravelly sounding voices. I just don't think the lyrics and delivery were completely flushed out at this point. Um, I have on here. That's about someone that moves from person to person, promising one thing, but never delivering. 
and it's just an endless cycle. Uh, the subject will never change, and and somebody's finally calling them out on that. But yeah, I feel like with a little more work, this the song would be elevated much higher. I think that's definitely true, and I, I actually really like the part too, uh, more towards the end where there's some quick tempo changes, like they're in and out of these two different tempos, and it's, uh, you know, as you mentioned uh, earlier, Ray, it's a testament to how like tight this band was at the time. Don't discount uh, Mark's slide playing, kind of buried in the background on the vor- verses. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, Ray. What do you think of this one? Well, I heard this and I and I took a really good look at the lyrics and the first thought was, I know somebody like this. Someone who seems to always be concocting a new scheme, one that always sounds good on the surface, but as soon as you start asking a few questions, it's evident that they haven't thought it through. And very soon you realize it's just a pipe dream because they will never act on anything. Um, this is probably the most rock and roll start of any song on the album. The way Steve comes in, it's almost Bonham-esque. Lyrically, Chris is making some good observations and asking some great questions, maybe just a little too harshly. Whatever became of all those years, you're like dust, you're so dry, who's wet behind their ears. Um, Musically, it's kind of a downer. It's morose and sluggish, but Rich and Mark weave beautifully throughout it. Johnny and Steve mesh so well together in this song. Mark's wad-drenched solo glides along that uneasy backbeat. He He is just... Why is he not more famous as a guitar player? And Eddie just lightly touches in some great accents through this song. I know it sounds like I'm repeating myself, but the solo fits along so well. It's solid and shines without saying, hey, look at me. Look at what a flashy guitar player I am. It just serves the song. In fact, the whole band is doing this throughout this album. Not one person is given the look at me performance. Not Chris, not Rich, Steve, Eddie, Johnny, or Mark. Everybody's just serving the song so well that it's a group effort. No wonder they called it band. Like this song is about to be, it's like this song is about somebody that just was an acquaintance in the club days. Someone who would always had like a different opinion about life and how, how it should be. Maybe someone who questioned if they'd make it as a band, like some crazy dream that they've got a plan in them, that they're going to go back to school. They're going to do things differently. And Chris just kind of comes back and says, so whatever happened to all that? Tell me about your pipe dream. I want to hear. Well, you're not around anymore. Um, I, I just, like I said, I know somebody like this. They just continue to plot around in their own routine, but they always have the greatest plans. That sounds great on the surface, but nothing comes of it. Looks good That's, on paper. It's very predictable. And my wife even says, well, what about this? And I'm just like, no, no it's going to happen with this, babe. Don't let just let it be. <laughs> let it be. Don't ever ask another follow-up question next time we see this person because it's not going to change. Yep. And it hasn't. So... <laughs> Now, you touched on something there that I think is a, a very appropriate point for this. This is very aptly titled. To call this the band is mm-hmm. really perfect because that, that's what this really showcases to me throughout is the fact that they are a solid unit as a band. It's almost sad in a way to listen to this because you know what came immediately after this. And it was yeah. the solution yeah. of this band. Shame. But that brings us to what I believe is the start of side B if you're uh, doing vinyl. But uh, this actually on the bootleg was the starter song, you know, the kickoff. And I think that uh, it wasn't a more appropriate spot for it. That's never forget this song.
Now, lyrically, while I don't like the chorus as much, this song is the way Chris sings it is fantastic. Mark on this thing is unbelievable. His solo, while it may not be the flashiest thing ever, the tone and the uh, the grit and aggression he gets out of it is probably one of the best things he's ever laid down on tape. And it's very signature Mark Ford in a way too, which I think is is great. But I, I think it kind of works in a more in an opening spot because it's kind of almost anthemic, you know. Never forget this song, you know. It's and uh, kind of set it, it would to me set the tone better for what was to follow after it. But uh, I don't, know, David. What do you think of this one? This is the song that's my least favorite song on the album. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, <laughs> um, but, but Mark's while playing does come close to saving it for me. I mean, it's, it's him kind of an angry solo. Uh, there's just this weird chord progression in the verses to me that's off putting. And that's one of the things that I don't like about it, but I will say this, the breakdown with the twin guitar lead is something you don't normally hear from Rich and Mark, uh, which I thought sounds really cool. Um, they've never played it live. To me, I just think it's a it's about a song that's truly at a breaking point. And instead of giving up, they're saying, remember what I tell you, I will overcome. I'll be back. So, uh, yeah, I just this one hasn't done anything for me. I don't think that's really a hot take, but um, yeah, just not my favorite. Well, that's all right. <laughs> so what do you think of this one, Ray? It's hard for me to call this song filler since everybody's playing so well on it. I just don't like the verses. I don't like the way the music goes into that gloomy, dark progression, a.k.a. bummer mode during the verses. I don't like how Chris is screaming. It, it just drives me nuts. But that being said, the guitar playing, once again, is stellar. He's working that wah-wah pedal in a way that I'm not really familiar with. It sounds a little bit different how he starts off. It's it's a wonderful psychedelic solo for Mark that, that after Chris screams, hey, and he goes off on that wah pedal in the coolest way. It just doesn't save the song for me. That that ending is hot, though. And the way Mark is playing those notes on the wah, it literally sounds like somebody with a Star Wars laser gun shooting at you. <laughs> I can see why they didn't play this live. And the amusing part of this take for me is I must have listened to no less than 20 interviews with Steve Gorman. I kept looking for insight and information about the recording of this album. And Steve says that this song isn't up to the same standards as the others on the album. He gives it the, well, it's not the best thing we ever put down. It's okay. You know the way he does. Apparently, this shares the same riff as Bitter, Bitter You and One Cop Story from both from the Tall Sessions. Mm. And some of the lyrics from Bitter You, Bitter you are used in the Never Forget This Song. I could lay my head down on your floor, empty, empty my pockets to make room for more. But I'd rather listen to Bitter, Bitter You than this. All right, so I'm I'm just in the minority then. I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think when maybe sequencing it, it may do it too. So yeah, because there's a completely different mood going, and then this kind of comes in way different. So may, maybe if if this was if it would come in like before Pain and Eight, maybe as an album opener, I can see that, and I wouldn't I wouldn't think so harshly of it. But it's just got a different mood going with the album, and then this kind of plops in so it may just be a sequencing thing yeah that's always kind of how i saw it you know it's just uh you know at the top it kind of worked because then you go off into everything else that's kind of superior to it in a way but uh it, i i think it sets the tone as an opener better than 
perhaps maybe pain and eight. And that's not a knock on pain and eight. It's just, I think the, I think the order has a lot to do with albums in general. I mean, that's not like a hot take to say, but, uh, you know, it's very important sequencing. I think it's a lost art, first of all, mm-hmm. the art of sequencing an album. Cause most, well, people- now it's just grab whatever you want. Exactly. You know, go on iTunes, grab what you want. Just take one song. You don't have to listen to the whole album. And there's no deep cuts anymore. No. Well, no good deep cuts. Let's put it like that. Yeah. No it's, hidden gems out there. No, it's it's a it's a it's kind of a, a a missing piece in the puzzle, really. You know. There's no loving cup or hundred years ago or winter. Yeah. That brings us to a song that I'm going to let David talk about first, because I I kind of know David's feelings towards this song, and I'm really excited to to hear his take on it. And that is Life Vest. Ah! this tune Uh, it's got its flaws but the potential is so big on this i believe if you tweaked a few things recorded a little bit differently i believe it could have been one of the singles um it's just got this that opening riff and playing that that rich has on it i just absolutely love it and unfortunately it's never been played live the life vest jam which is essentially the first couple of bars of the song uh, has been played 11 times. I've got a bootleg where it's actually labeled the Life Vest Jam, and it's only about like 15 or 20 seconds long. But uh, it usually showed up after uh, Black Moon Jam, uh, the few times it was played. Uh, like I said, that opening riff is just butter, and you've got the mandolin in the background adding a little bit. Uh, the harmonies that Rich and Chris have during those verses are some of the best I think that they have. And Chris is singing in this registry he doesn't normally sing in that I really like. I just think the chorus could use a little fine tuning and obviously they should tinker with uh, the different um, levels of the instruments in the song. But other than that, uh, this would be kind of like the Holy grail for me. If we could ever get them to play it, you know, if I, if you remember, I was begging the Americans to play it when we uh, saw them in Atlanta, but they, they never learned it. I was always told if I came up to Boston to see them that, um, that that would get played. But uh, yeah, this is one of my favorite deep tracks by the, the the crows and i remember one time gorman mentioned it in an interview and he just kind of passed over it and you know kind of hurt my heart but that's okay (laughs) (laughs) 
I think this is a particularly great song. I love the way that the acoustic guitars and mandolin kind of blend together. I think that's a great sound. And then as simple as it sounds, that repetitive kind of bend note riff that Mark is doing over the top of it is so difficult. When I played guitar, I tried to attempt that. And to get that exactly right each time is just very, very difficult. So it's a very minor thing that he adds there, but it's very important to the song. I think this is probably rivals Wyoming and me for my favorite track on the on the entire album. I think it's a great one. Ray, what do you think? This one, it starts with Rich yelling out the count in in the most bored and disinterested way possible, which is so rich. That opening melody that breaks into the song is so hooky, and it kept it just kept getting stuck in my head. The descending progression, so jangly, just throwing those notes off like sparks. It's so simple and so catchy. It's like we were talking about those bends. I really like Chris's vocal melody and his approach to the verses. It's relaxed and also very hooky. The chorus of how can I make something so wrong, something so right, just harkens back to me, to Wyoming and me, and just how you can tell he wants to make this relationship work, and he just can't. I love the lyrics of headaches, heartaches, windfalls and pitfalls. They pay what they pay. I'm sure that this band knows a few things about these things. Car crash, talk trash, bloodbaths, and witchcraft. It's 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 if that's what you see, it's a great twist of words. And um shipwreck life best if you swim to shore or you sink away. Mistake, bad taste, just spit it out and it goes away. Just what a good song. And it just kind of tells me where Chris is at with this. That this is, you know, spit it out, it'll go away. So I do love this song. It, it is fantastic. And I think we're going to have to take this one to the people, Ray, because I always thought that was Steve doing the count off in the beginning. So did I. I, yeah. I, I was going to let, oh. let the professor roll with it. He's usually I, right. I didn't. It just sounds so, he's just so bored. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever throw, it is, they're just bored out of their mind. <laughs> I'm going to uh, I'm gonna throw that one out on social media. You guys tell us uh, who you think it is. I don't, maybe, maybe uh, I've been totally wrong all these years. <laughs> but uh so that then brings us to a track that on the original bootleg was known as Okay By Me, but here it's reverted to its original title when it was slightly different when played in, in concert on the 95 tour, and that's Grinning. <laughs> This song has a lot of strong points to me. And like you said, it's had several incarnations over the years, lyric changes, subtle changes to it. Uh, it's never been played live, but I, I just think um, 
it, it's it's got a lot of potential. I love Ed's parts in it. Kind of has that Ed carnival sound like you have in the breakdown of Gone, which I think makes the song a little more upbeat and sound a little poppier. I mean, more like a pop song. You know, when I look at the lyrics, I, it's just about to me, it's about a couple that have two very different views of the relationship. One wants to stay, but isn't going to be upset if it's over. The other clearly believes something that the first person doesn't believe or, or think it's true. Um, this one had a lot of potential and, and could have possibly been a single, if you ask me. It's one of the ones that could have been a single because it does have some pop sensibilities to it. I, I would agree with that. And I, I think it's a great tune. A lot of people don't like the way it lyrically changed into okay by me but i i think it's great i even like that little thing that chris does at the end the little cha 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 i think that's yeah. funny it showcases chris's humor in a way you know uh but i think this song is great it peppers in a lot of funk and soul elements in there like guitar wise there's a lot going on here a lot more than maybe on the first couple of listens you, you get but you really start to take it in which is true of a lot of black crows material but i i think this is a a great entry and i think you're absolutely right, David. I think out of all the songs, this one probably had the most radio potential, I would think. What's your take on this one, Ray? I think that most albums are like what Jimmy Page and Robert Plant described. It's, it's a snapshot of where the band was at the time when they recorded it, and nothing more. And with this one, I can't help but shake that this is this is where Chris's marriage was breaking up, and everything was just going nuts. Wyoming and me, my heart's killing me, life best, all seem to tie into this in one way or another. And it's this one, the way it starts with that kind of county fair carousel craziness that signals the situation has devolved into the absurd now. It's it's all the joke that I'm starting to see with the absurdity of saying the same things over and over and trying to hang on to something. You can you can you can believe what you can believe. That'll be okay by me. You you know, I don't want you to leave, uh, but you're gonna think what you want to. This just really sounds like everything's just gone absolutely bad. Uh, that's a whole, we've now reached a whole level of insanity. Mark Solo, he's just playing off the charts for this whole album. He seems to be dripping with perfect solos and throwing incredible licks left and right. And Chris's scat at the end with the cha-cha-cha signals to me he's just given up. Then whatever happens is just okay by him. He's, he realizes that now this is, we've reached the level of absurdity that it just I can't I can't get anywhere with it. You, you know, Ray, you mentioned throughout like Chris's lyrical contributions on this album, and I really think you know because when the bootleg first started circulating and people were listening to it, a lot of people criticized some of the lyrics on this record. I never understood that because to me it's it, they show so much more of Chris's depth, yeah, yeah. Know, emotional depth to me and what was going on. I mean, this is like a slice right out of his life, mm-hmm. more so than perhaps any other collection of songs that they put out and i think that's a fantastic thing i agree i think that this is this is like i said it's a very mature work Mm. for the band lyrically and musically this is where that shame comes in where it shows what could have been and what they could have reached and who knows how far it would have gone but then the flip side to that coin could also be how far it might not have gone you know you never know this is the black crows (laughs) this is the band of if only if only yeah that's true but that brings us to perhaps the most country-tinged track on this album, and I, I really enjoy it. That's My Heart's Killing Me. Once I burn a one sad fence I cannot move 
I I absolutely love the way that song just kicks in the way Steve hits that hi hat and brings it in and and uh, Donnie Heron laying down some wonderful fiddle on this. I think it's uh, it really makes the song the the way Donnie plays fiddle because he he just contributed to some of Rich's solo stuff and you know throughout the years he he makes it sound as sad as a fiddle should sound and it really adds a whole other dimension to to any song that he plays on. He's such an underrated player. He doesn't get mentioned as nearly as much as he probably should. But again, this kind of lyrically falls in line with the uh, relationship kind of falling apart theme that kind of goes throughout. Uh, I think this is a fantastic song. When it first started circulating as a bootleg, I was interested to hear just based on the title, you know. But uh, David, what do you think of this song? I used to really have a hard time with some of the lyrics on this. You know, the, the line, you were so sad, made my dogs howl. To me, that seemed kind of like we talk about Jagger with some of his country stuff. It seemed a little forced to me. But then you get into like the line, will this crime ever go to trial? And the way Chris sings that one, it is so convincing. I believe without Chris's vocals, I would probably dislike this song. But the way he emotes on it really lifts the song and elevates it. I also, though, think it could have been a Graham Parsons era bird song, to be honest with you. Uh, like on Sweetheart of the Rodeo Days. But, uh, you know, like we said earlier, it's about someone being torn in two by a relationship. But I'll agree that the fiddle really adds another layer that helps the song. If I could just get over a couple of the lyric lines, I I, I would like this one more. But I don't hate it. And, and I believe it really has its strong points. And, and they help to overcome some of the lyrics in the verses. And I should point out that uh, Donnie Heron was a member of BR549 who had toured with the crows the year prior. So it was nice to have him in the fold. Ray, what do you think? This is my favorite song on this album. Um, is that right? Yes. The, the snare rim shots, the violin and that Spanish guitar. Chris's voice is so full of emotion and pain. I just love this sad, sad song. I like how he says, well, it's just you and it's just me. My heart's killing me. It's like when you have a really bad breakup and you really got hurt. And your whole heart just wants to die. And you just you just want this pain to go away. And all you could think of is that other person. And it doesn't matter. There's only you two in the whole world. And that's it. The lyric of you're so sad you made my dogs howl. You kept the ring and forgot the vow. I mean, what what could this be about? But you know how profoundly sad you have to be to make dogs howl? <laughs> I mean, they, they, they were there for you. But you really got to be bad. So. Um, it's what a visual lyric along with the next one. Will this crime ever go to trial? It's a great line. The chorus is probably the most emotionally impactful lyric they ever wrote. One sad bird, one sad fence. I cannot move. I have no defense. Staring at two helpless hands. And, and all I want to do is hold you again. That is just gut wrenching. And then the second time that will this crime ever go to trial? Ed's keyboard lick here is absolutely perfection. I just I love this song. This this could have been this could have been a huge hit for them. I don't know if anybody else could have done it with the same thing because Chris is really pouring his heart out into this. This is real, and it's only been played a few times. It shows that it's just really a personal song. I, I'm surprised, not, not in, in a bad way. I'm surprised that this is your favorite tune on the album because I mean it's a it's a strong one for me, and I uh, I really like a lot of things about it. Like I said, it's just such a mature work. Mm. So I, I had just listened to a podcast about Led Zeppelin three, 
And they kept talking about how this was a rebirth for them and a rebirth. And I kept thinking, not a rebirth, but a growing up, you know, and that's it made me think of the parallel between band. This was a they really grew up on this. And look what Led Zeppelin three did. Look what that launched. I mean, they they did launch that four, which was like a basically everything about four other than the music, but the packaging and everything that's on that album, they picked out as basically a big middle finger to the whole music establishment. Yeah. And they said, we're going to do it our way. This They could have had a Led Zeppelin 4 after this. Wouldn't yeah. that have been awesome? That's but, that's absolutely true. And Led Zeppelin 3 happens to be my favorite Led Zeppelin record. So interesting. I never thought of it as, as, as the way you put it, but yeah, you're absolutely right. So that brings us to the last song on the album, boys. And that is a song that would later appear as a by your side B side. And there has been great debate as to which one is the better version. And that is the track Peace Anyway. Now, me personally, I happen to like the band sessions version just a bit more. Both versions are a showcase for how great of a keys player Ed is. I think this is such a fantastically good song lyrically as well. You know, you're not promised a hot meal; it's just another raw deal. You know, but you'll find peace anyway. I, I just, I kind of like the the idea behind these lyrics. It's there's something very, very cool about them and the way they're delivered. Probably one of Chris's better lyrical moments, in my opinion. But David, what do you think of this one? This is the lead single. If I'm in, if I'm the the record company, I, I just uh, I, I love it. I, I prefer the by your side version better because I love the piano intro and it's obviously mixed a lot better. But uh, we get that carnival organ again from Ed to start it off, and you know, like we said, it's gone through several incarnations and it's it's roughly mixed on here, which is kind of the only real downer to it. But I, I do like the acoustic piano and by your side better. The song kind of ends the album on a little bit more of a positive note. It's like, look, you're going to be dealt these blows in life, but you got to get through them and you got to get through them however you can, you know, find your peace anyway. To me, it's a top three B-side uh, in their catalog, along with like Tied Up and Swallowed and, and some of those other songs from By Your Side. By Your Side, if you take... I always say this, there's four or five songs. If you take off by your side and put the B sides on it, you have a totally different outlook on that album, but uh, yeah, it's just great Ed work. And like uh, Ray said, Chris's lyrics are very mature on this. And I, I think it works best in the final spot because after all the despair and heartache and, and those type of themes 
running through the album, this one kind of has a, a bit of hope to it, you know, and it's kind of a, a good way to go out. Uh, what's your take on this one, Ray? Basically, I thought of the the quote from John Lennon that in the end, everything's going to be okay. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. So <laughs> it's you get those carnival keys again, building into that riff with Mark is just throwing licks everywhere. You already brought up that you're not promised a hot meal. Just another raw deal. It's an upbeat, somewhat hopeful song that regardless, you're going to find peace in your life anyway. And Mark's licks after that first chorus is everything I want to be in a guitar player. He's just untouchable on this. It's a great touch with Ziggy Marley's backup singer on the final word of the final just anyway. I love how it just ends that way. Where she just comes in, you can only hear, it's the only time you can really decipher that it's her. And she just says, anyway. So I just like that. So this is a great song. I I heard the the Peace Anyway B-side. I don't know which one I like better. I like both. So I kind of lean more towards this one because it's on this album and it's just, it's everybody that's involved with it. But I don't know. I just find this to be a devastatingly good album from them as a whole. You know, and that leads us into the, you know, the overall picture for this is, do you think that had they released this, what they're, you know, they would have had a much different trajectory and maybe been able to keep the quote unquote classic lineup together? I think it would have been might have been more possible. I do think the band needed a break though. They had been touring incessantly for many years and I think that was kind of tearing them apart at the seams a bit too. But maybe they took a break, you know, recorded this a little more proper and and put it out. I think it might have helped them a bit. I I think so too. I think that well, I mean according to Steve, Mark really needed to go into rehab at this point. Probably Ed too. You know, like that one lyric of, you know, everybody's got problems, but that's just not where I want to begin. That's a pretty good insight into how Chris would kind of admit it and then immediately deflect. So he probably needed it, too. He obviously needed to to help himself after his marriage breaking up. I think if they had taken the time, if they would have recorded this properly and been able to to fix anywhere where they needed, they think they needed it fixed, though, man, we could be talking about this band in a way that's, and this is not hyperbole, but like, on, on the same level as like the Stones in the 70s. So they could have gone that far. This was, uh, this was like I said, it's a very mature work, and who knows where they would have gone afterwards. When you bring up By Your Side after this, it just it's such a, it's jarring because you don't have that same cohesion with the band. And you can tell it when you listen to it. It's not, it's just not there. There's just not, it's, it's, it's not a band, it's a group. That's, I think that's what Steve had called it at that point. It just became a group. It became a job. They could have really just gotten stellar after this. And every time I hear Steve talk about how he, this was his favorite album that they did, that the, he, this, was, this was the band that they all wanted to become, they'd finally done it, which makes complete sense to me because, you know, and athletes go through the same thing. They just, they, they constantly do the same thing over and over and they get so repetitive that it gets to the point where they don't have to think about it. There's no push. And then, they're playing at a level that they never thought they could actually achieve. And then the, the game, whatever the game is, opens up for them in a completely different way. And then they transcend something. That's really a common theme, and it's happened with this band. That's why I think it's such a shame that that this didn't get released back then. And what happened to their lineup? Yeah, I mean, a shame, but definitely not a surprise that they blew it all up after right after this. No, and that's the other part that's a shame, that it's not a surprise. <laughs> 
<laughs> you just want to just just knock some heads together and say, idiots, just get this together. But, you know, like I said, what if, if only, if only. It's one of the great what ifs in, in music. I if think, they yeah. would have just recorded this properly mastered it, and it took a year or so off and then came back. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, Johnny look. would have been gone. Johnny, it sounds like Johnny was gone regardless, but yeah, um, obviously you'd bring Sven in. And I mean, Sven's a great bass player and a great vocalist too. So uh, yeah, I, I really wish, I really wish we could get a cleaner version of this, like much cleaner version, but I'll take what I, what I can get. It's one of my favorite albums of theirs. Let's uh, let's go one by one here. Top tracks on this album. Ray, what's your top pick from this one? Oh, My Heart's Killing Me is my top pick, followed really closely by Pain and Eight or Another Roadside Tragedy. David, what about you? Wyoming and Me. Yeah, I'd have to say probably Wyoming and Me wins out overall. Although, you know, there are some other tracks on here like Life Fest and even My Heart's Killing Me are close rivals. But yeah, the Wyoming and Me always just takes the cake, as they say. Well, gentlemen... This has been a a great and wonderful insight. I want to thank you, Ray, for joining us again. Well, thank you guys for inviting me. It's always a pleasure, sir. And uh, we look forward to having you on again in the future to have many more great discussions such as this one. And being that you are our esteemed guest, you get to choose the playout song. What are you going to go with? Let's go with another roadside tragedy from, from somewhere in 2005, 2006, when they would really just extend that out. All right, let's throw it over to a nice live version of another roadside tragedy from the 0506 run. And to have the last word, as usual, here is producer Jason. Stay tall, everyone.
get there. 